at some point reading about what's happening out there in the news today, it becomes exhausting. And I want you to know that I feel it too. I feel heavy. I can't ignore it because then, well, I'm not a part of the change, but at the same time it feels, well, pointless to try and pay attention because it's like drinking from a fire hose right now. It's unrelenting and it feels a bit drowning. And like I have said many times in the last week, there is a sense of divine appointment with where we are in scripture right now in comparison to where our world is at. We have heard about the apocalypse last week, and this week we get to talk about betrayal and get to talk about the overall meta-narrative that Jesus is taking part in. But at first, a quick history lesson. Jesus is Jewish. I use that in the present tense because I really don't see anywhere where scripture where Jesus renounces his Judaism. I would like to say, and similar to Wesley, who thought himself as an Anglican, just thought he was reforming the church, Jesus would still consider himself a Jew. Jesus being a Jew means that he stands inside of a history that we need to talk about to give context to what is about to happen. And that begins with the Passover tradition. Passover is a feast where the Jews remember their enslavement to Egypt and God's deliverance of them from that slavery. It's called Passover because it's when the angel of death passed over the Jews' uh, doors and houses and killed the firstborn of Egypt, which then convinces pharaohs to let the Jewish people go. God delivers the Jews through the death in the, uh, through the, from the death of the Egyptian sons, and the Jews are safe by the blood of a spotless lamb over their doorways. But first, we need to talk about nard. What exactly is nard? Well, nard is an oil from a flower called the spikenard, which is his rich history going back as far as Homer's epic, the Iliad, and even further back to ancient Egypt, where this ancient perfume was stored in, you guessed it, alabaster jars. The oil, because of its sweet smell, was a luxury for ancient Egyptians. It was also used by early Israelites as a burnt offering of incense for the temple altar. So the use of this story is very intentional. This is not just a random bottle of CK1. This is a very specific bottle that has a history and significance to the overall narrative that is about to go down. So nard is stored in the alabaster jar in Egypt, and now we are talking about the Passover, which God broke the Egyptians so that Israel could go free. And in the meta-narrative, we're about to talk Jesus breaking the temple system so that humanity could go free. This is not coincidence. This is divine appointment. So the woman breaks the jar and a bunch of people make a big stink of it because of the money involved. And you know what? This is one of the most confusing interactions that we have with Jesus. Let me explain. Just a couple of chapters earlier, we have Jesus telling the rich young ruler to sell everything and give it to the poor so that he may achieve salvation or eternal life. And now we have a woman who has a very, very expensive item, anoints Christ with it, and Jesus actually commends her for it, saying that you will always have the poor, but you will not always have me. This is quite a juxtaposition. And well, Jesus seems to be kind of talking out of both sides of his mouth. And when this happens, we need to once again pull back interpretation and look at intention. So let's see what Jesus says to his disciples first and sees us if that gives us any clues on what the true intention of what Christ is saying might be. 
So when the disciples reach out to shame the young woman, Jesus tells them to stop. And what she is doing is there a, is is a part of a larger purpose that they can't even begin to see. All they can see is a great expense and not the holiness of her action. How many times in the church do we get caught up in seeing expense and we miss the holiness of an action? Jesus tells them plainly, the poor you will always with you, you always have with you, but he will not. There are some things that when we spend for the holy, it is worth the expense. Now I want to clarify something because of recently I've seen more and more people talking about this scripture as a reason as ridiculous as it sounds, to not help the poor. Jesus, What Jesus is saying is that there will always be poor people to help. As in, you should always help the poor. Don't stop helping the poor because they will always be around. But in this case, Jesus says what is happening right now, right in front of them, this is a holy moment. That does not mean we stop from doing what we are always called to do, but rather it is important to recognize when you're in the presence of God. Jesus is saying, I am here. And there is something happening here that is holy. Let us not lose focus on this moment. Let us not lose focus on following the law so much that we miss out on what Christ is doing in front of us. Once again, Christ is holding up the practices that he has run into where people have been so focused on folding the interpretation of law that they miss the intention. We get so focused on interpreting what Christ tells us to help the poor that we lose the intention. Or sometimes maybe we see what Christ is saying here, saying you always have the poor and we lose the intention. What Jesus is saying is, I am here. There is something holy happening. Do not miss me. And I think Jesus then begins to predict that the scriptures coming into existence, which is kind of a weird thing, you have to remember as readers of the story, for the very first time when they were reading it, it was the first time these stories were really written, being written down, and yet Christ says here that these stories will be written down. And this woman will become famous because she has the knowledge of seeing the holy in the midst of all of these things. And this act shows us that sometimes we need to be paying attention to the calling that Christ has in front of us. And maybe not just the calling that we hold to. Because we do that sometimes as a church, right? Or as individuals as well. We hold on to what we think we're called to do. And miss the holy that is happening in front of us. And now we move on to the next day into the upper room. And there's this preparation that the disciples are setting up for now. And it's the Passover meal or what we know as the Seder. And as I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, we, do, we used to do Seder meals at NCKC pre-COVID. And we'll do them again once we can meet again. And if you've ever attended one of those Seder meals, this is going to sound familiar. Jesus starts off this Seder, though, in a vet of a weird way. I mean, you've been following Jesus around for quite a while now. And he begins to have, he has had began in the last couple of weeks to say some weird things. 
but nothing is as weird as this. Jesus opens it saying that somebody in this room will betray him. And if we put ourselves in the minds of those following Jesus at the time, if we put ourselves in the mindset of the first readers of this gospel, this is a huge statement. When Jesus has talked about betrayal before, we always assumed it was an outside actor. Someone not close to them, perhaps the Pharisees who plotted against him or the Sadducees who plotted against him. It was never thought that it would be one of his disciples, one of his close friends. And this kind of then begins to take on this murder mystery podcast level, right? That the call is coming from inside the house. The betrayer is in the room. Now all the disciples want to refute this point and go around the room saying, Surely it isn't me. And Jesus finally gives in by saying the person who will dip their bread into the cup will be the one who betrays him. Now for us today, there is some symbolism that is missed because we are not familiar with the Seder meal. There are four cups of wine during the Seder meal and they go to represent four parts of deliverance that God gave to the Israelites when they were in Egypt. It comes out of Exodus chapter 6 verses 6 through 7. Therefore, say to the Israelites, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from Egyptian forced labor. I will rescue you from slavery to them. I will set you free with great power and with momentous events of justice. I like that. Momentous events of justice. I'll take you as my people and I will be your God. You will know that I, the Lord, am your God who has freed you from Egyptian forced labor. There are four promises in there. I will bring you out. I will deliver you. I will redeem you. And I will take you. So when Jesus is referring to dipping their bread into a cup, he's actually talking about one of these promises represented in this cup. So when Judas shares his bread with Jesus, he is joining in to with Jesus into what this cup represents. Now there's this huge theological trap right now that I'm not going to even begin to deal with because I'm already late getting this sermon out and if I were to spend time on it, it would just take up so much time. But I wanted to mention it there just because it's glaringly obvious and we need to talk about it, but I'm not going to go into it, I promise. There's a lot to talk about whether Judas had a choice on betraying Jesus. Where Judas could have chosen not to betray Jesus. Or did God condemn Judas to being a hated individual without ever giving Judas a choice to choose otherwise? This is a whole ball of wax that I'm not going to pretend, that I don't want to pretend doesn't exist. But I think that there is some good parallels to thinking about how Pharaoh's heart was hardened and how maybe Judas' heart was also hardened then sometimes in order for God to do certain things, certain things must transpire. But I want to also offer that if you want a semi-heretical but very thought-provoking journey into what is written, there is somebody who's written something about this. And the person who wrote it is not a theologian and actually ended up leaving the church. So they have a very different view on Christianity. But I would highly recommend the graphic novel titled Judas by Jeff Loveless. It is a fantastic read. But I should forewarn you once again, it is a bit heretical, but it does a very good job of dealing what 
did Judas, did Judas actually have a choice? Okay, so back to the narrative. So I do think that there's this interesting thing happening here uh, that is going before, uh, that they're doing here in Mark. Jesus is talking about whether the betrayer, and then talking about the betrayer, dipping his bread into the cup. And the next thing that actually happens is what we know as the Last Supper or Communion, where Jesus actually asked them all to join him in the breaking of the bread and the drinking of the cup. There's a point here well, where it feels like we're all called to dip our bread into the same cup as Jesus. We're called to join Christ in both our admittance of our betrayal of Christ, but also join in his crucifixion. Joining in, even as betrayers, his breaking of his body as the bread and the spilling of his blood as the wine. We, as sinners, are invited to die with Christ every time we take the sacrament of the Last Supper. Every time we take communion is a reminder that Christ came to invite people like you, like me, into his death so that we may find freedom. Just as the, just as the Israelites found freedom from captivity to slavery, we have been invited into that reminder of our own freedom from Christ so that we can remember when the angel of death passed over him and passed over us. So we get to join into a cup of redemption, the third Seder cup, the cup of redemption. I will redeem you, God promises the Israelites. And after this last supper, Christ is moved to go pray because he knows of his extreme suffering that is ahead of him. And this is a great reminder of the humanity of Christ. He knows the pain that he will feel. He knows the suffering that he will go through he goes to God to pray. And on the way there, Christ tells the disciples that they will scatter because of fear. The action ahead is so heavy that they will be full of fear and sadness and leave. And of course, we have famously Peter denying that this will happen. Peter is the voice of all of us, and surely, Christ, I will never betray you. I have walked with you and seen your miracles. I have seen the lame walk. I have seen the blind receive sight. I have seen the sick get well and the hungry fed. I have called you the Christ, the son of David, the human one, the one who will break the bow. I will surely not be a one who betrays you. And Christ says that he will. That he will actually deny him three times. And he says, no, that even if you were to die tonight, I will die alongside you. And for us who know the gospel story, we know that that's not true. Peter doesn't die that night. But actually, in a roundabout way, he does. Because we all do. Just as Judas dipped his bread into the cup, so did Peter. And that so do we, that we are joined in Christ into that cup of redemption. Once again, all sinners are welcome at the table of Christ. Even those who believe that they will never sin again, we are shown that we will. And yet the master of the table does not reject us. And in fact, he sees our rejection as an invitation to invite us into his cup of redemption. Just as we, just as we are, with one, without one plea, that you, my Christ, would die for me. So Christ goes to pray and ask God to take this cup from him. 
which is just that shout back to the Seder meal. Christ is asking, knowing that for him to drink of this heavy cup of redemption, it means he will be tortured and he will die. Christ is human. He knows the road ahead and it scares him. It pains him. And he asks if there's another way. But knowing that there isn't, he embraces it. And I think that there's actually a very poetic moment that whenever I hear this story is not talked about. Christ, being scared about taking this cup, he finds the disciples asleep. And I think it is a bit of a reminder to Christ why he is doing this. He walks back to see that, well, that we are weak. That we're not even able to stay awake for him and wait for him. That we will fall asleep and we will fail. No matter how many times Christ warns us, he still catches us slipping. And because of that, Christ knows what must be done. He knows that we will, he will have to drink deep of the cup of redemption because our flesh is weak. But may our spirit be found willing. I wanted to end my sermon talking about this because I know that this is an important thing to address. I want to talk about sin because you see up until this point, we've actually talked a lot about sin. And it seems that these chap- that even in the chapters leading up to it crescendos to talking about this one simple line when it comes to sin, that our flesh is weak, but our spirit is willing. First, we have, we started in the temple. And Christ talking about how a system of forgiveness of sin was about to change. Because the temple politic had turned sin into a system that disproportionately affected the marginalized and away from its original intention for all people of all nations. And Christ says that he has come to destroy that system. And then we talk about how forgiveness of sin will no longer be about an offering that a priest can give for you and the forgiveness of your sin. But rather it will be God who forgives your sin, regardless how big they are, even if they're as big as a mountain, it can be casted into a sea of forgiveness and That if we desire that forgiveness, we must learn to forgive one another. We heard that the submission of law, so to not sin, is to love the Lord your God with all your hearts, your being, and your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Once again, the forgiveness of our sin is also how we love our neighbor as ourself. We learned that the end times is not about sin, but rather a promise of a good and eternal system that we can be a part of. We have heard about how the one who betrays Christ and the one who denied Christ is invited into joining into a cup of redemption, into a communion with Christ. That sin is forgiven by joining into a sacrifice that Christ has made for us. In all of this, It seems that we have learned from our history that our humanness will fail. Our interpretation of intention will fail. And that we will attempt again and again to make Christ's kingdom here on earth, our kingdom here on earth, something familiar to us. But we still have to have a willing spirit. Because even though our intention to interpret will fail, our flesh will fail, may our spirit be found willing.
A lot of times when I've heard this, it's always been an excuse for sin. I failed because my flesh is weak. And that is true. We will fail because Christ says our flesh will fail. I agree, but I want to push us into the part about the Spirit is willing. We need to be willing and continually willing to seek Christ. We need to make sure that our spirit, joined with Christ's pursuits here on earth, will continue to do the good work, even when our flesh fails us. Because we, even though our flesh fails us, we will be forgiven so that we must continue. We must continue because Christ invites us to have a willing spirit to continue. We have been invited, even though we may be failures, to continue. Hear me on that, church. Even though we may be failures, we have been invited to continue. To continue to do the good work, to continue to fight the good fight, to continue to keep the faith. Though our flesh may fail through Christ, our spirit will not. That we may be caught slipping at points in this life that is not the end of our story. Because as Christ Because as people who have been given, forgiven through Christ, we are joined with Christ, whose success covers all of our failures. Whose success can cast our mountain of failures into a sea of forgiveness. Because when the cup was presented to us, and when the cup was presented to Christ, he saw us failing, and so he drank it on the spot. People who have ears, let them hear. You are forgiven. Though your flesh may fail, you are forgiven. Christ has drank that cup of forgiveness for you. So now I ask, is your spirit willing? Is your spirit willing to do the good work that invites you, invites others into doing the work of the kingdom of God, to do work of breaking down the systems of this world so that we can work towards building systems of the internal? Is your spirit willing, though your flesh may fail. I pray that Christ finds a willing spirit. I pray for us this week that as we continue to good, do the good work, that Christ finds in us the willing spirit to do what Christ has called us to do. And that is love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your being, and with all your strength and to love your neighbor as yourself. May our spirits be found willing to do that this week. Be blessed this week. And then also, speaking of weak flesh, please remember to wash your hands.